Mother Jones is dead and gone, she could no longer stay. No one knew how old she was, but she was often heard to say how she was born in 1830 in the Swede County Court. But she crossed the foaming billows till she landed in New York. Mother Jones, the miner's angel, must be treated with respect. I'm Mary Harris Jones, but I'm called a lot of other names. Bolshevik, socialist, most dangerous woman in America, walking wrath of God. Today, the Irish-born schoolteacher and dressmaker who became a prominent American union organizer and activist, she preferred Hellraiser, is known simply as Mother Jones. After a yellow fever killed her family in 1867 and the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 destroyed her livelihood, Mother Jones traveled the country organizing mine work. She helped coordinate major strikes and co-founded the Industrial Workers of the World. Fearless and outspoken, when Mother Jones was denounced on the floor of the United States Senate as the grandmother of all agitators, she replied, I hope to live long enough to be the great-grandmother of all agitators. She died on November 30th, 1930, in Silver Spring, Maryland, not far from where I'm recording this, at the Burgess Farm on Powder Mill Road. Thanks to the work of Labor Heritage Foundation Saul Schneiderman, there's a state historical marker honoring the grand old champion of labor. And we're pleased to rerun Saul's piece on Mother Jones' 1913 arrest while leading a protest of conditions in West Virginia mines. On today's show, we begin with a brief overview of Mother Jones' life, followed by Kalani Lee's reenactment of Mother Jones' famous 1921 speech in Matewan, West Virginia, both from Evan Papp's Empathy Media podcast. Evan attended this year's Labor Day commemoration of the 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain, which was part of the West Virginia Mine Wars. Then, from the Jace Media Service podcast, reenactor Loretta Reimer Williams brings Mother Jones to life with vivid tales from a life of tragedy and an unbreakable commitment to fighting for workers that still inspires us today, 91 years after her death. On this week's Labor History in 2, the year was 1908. That was the day that an explosion at the coal mine in Mariana in Washington County, Pennsylvania, claimed the lives of 154 miners. It was one of the deadliest disasters in U.S. mining history. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. Labor Leader Diaries, Entry Number 1 Mother Jones, a North Star for us all Mary G. Harris was born August 1st, 1837 in Cork, Ireland. In 1847, the Irish faced starvation from a potato blight caused by a British feudal economic policy of monocropping. Her family immigrated to North America as part of one of the greatest mass exoduses from a single island in history. Upon arriving in Toronto, the Harris family faced discrimination due to their immigrant status as well as their Catholic faith and Irish heritage. 
At age 23, she found a teaching position at a convent in Monroe, Michigan. Dissatisfied with the work conditions, she moved to Chicago, then to Memphis, where in 1861 she married George E. Jones, a member and organizer of the National Union of Iron Molders. In 1867, a yellow fever epidemic in Memphis killed her husband and their four children in the matter of two months. She was 30 years old. After that tragedy, she returned to Chicago to begin a dressmaking business catering to the upper class. But four years later, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 destroyed her home, shop, and possessions. The 1877 railroad strike further radicalized her, and she joined the Knights of Labor, where she helped organize workers in an era where protests and strikes could end with police shooting and killing of workers. The violence directed at workers helped grow the Knights to become the largest labor organization in the country with over a million members. As May 1st, 1886 approached, the Knights of Labor prepared for a general strike demanding an eight-hour workday. The Chicago Haymarket bombings created a reactionary tsunami leading to the demise of the Knights of Labor. As the Knights crumbled into oblivion, Mary Jones became an educator and organizer with the United Mine Workers traveling throughout the United States. By age 60, she had assumed the persona of Mother Jones by claiming to be older than she was, wearing outdated black dresses and referring to the male workers that she helped as her boys. The first reference to her in print as Mother Jones was in 1897. In 1902, she was put on trial in West Virginia for ignoring an injunction banning meetings by striking minors. The district attorney called her the most dangerous woman in America. In 1903, Jones sought to organize children who were working in mills and mines in Pennsylvania. Many of the children at Union headquarters were missing fingers and limbs, and she attempted to get newspaper publicity for the bad labor conditions experienced by children. However, the mill owners held stock in most newspapers and would not publish the facts about child labor. So she organized a march from Philadelphia to Oyster Bay, New York, the hometown of President Theodore Roosevelt, demanding children to go to school, not the mines. Though the president refused to meet with the marchers, the incident brought the issue of child labor to the forefront of the public agenda. During the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike of 1912 in West Virginia, a shooting war broke out between United Mine Worker members and the private army of the mine owners. Mary Jones defied martial law in the area to continue public speaking and organizing, and she was arrested and sentenced to 20 years in state penitentiary. After 85 days of confinement, her release coincided with Indiana Senator John W. Kern's initiation of a Senate investigation into the conditions in the local coal mines. Jones remained a union organizer for the United Mine Workers into the 1920s and continued to speak on union affairs. Mary Harris Jones died in Adelphi, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., at the age of 93. She's buried in the Union Miners Cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois. And I long to see the day when labor will have the destinies of the nation in her own hands, and that she will stand a united force and show the world what the workers can do.
Can you hear me back there? I want you to be able to repeat everything I say to your dirty, filthy, cheating, lying bosses. For those of you just showed up to see what was going on, you don't know who I am. I'm Mary Harris Jones, but I'm called a lot of other names. Bolshevik, socialist, most dangerous woman in America, walking wrath of God, and Mother Jones. But I'm used to the slander from the politicians and the press. Well, I'm here to tell you what's the God's truth. It doesn't matter what race, creed, or political banner you stand under. We're all laborers, and we've got to stand together. If we don't, there's no hope for any of us. You've got to start using your brain, folks. You've got to start using your brain. The times are changing. Times are changing. The minds of man are changing in this country, around the world. All of this unrest, the miners upset. Why are they upset? What's the real cause? Why would they go out on strike for months on end? Why would they do it? Why would they do it? There's a new change to the mind. The politicians don't know about it because they don't have brains like ours. We're like the fella up in the lookout tower and he can see the smoke from a long ways off and he knows, he knows there's a wildfire coming. It's going to sweep across the county, across the state, across the United States and around the world. And nothing's going to stop it. The Russians can't stop it. The Chinese can't stop it. Deportations can't stop it. We've got to stand together. That's our only hope, to organize and stand together. It's not the different races and religions that's causing all the trouble. No, it's those politicians and the press with their poison pens, writing poison, poisoning your minds. But you yourselves, you're men of honor, respectable, decent, hardworking, and you've let them come in and rob you blind. And you never said a damn word about it. You let them rob you. Oh, they smile at you and say, what a lovely job you're doing. But they're robbing you blind. They're coming in, taking your money and hiring armed guards to keep you in subjection. And what do you do about it? This is a great nation. And you've turned it over to the dollar thieves. You've turned it to the dollar thieves and now your children your children have to fight your battles for you. Now's the time for the laborers to stand together in solidarity. The press is sowing poison with their poison pens, but we're sowing harmony with our solidarity. 
We've got to stand together. I want you to carry to your grave honor, dignity, and respect to your fellow man, for your fellow laborers, those that have God-given differences. Respect them. We can stand together and fight for fair wages, equality, and justice. Are you ready for fair wages? Yeah. Are you ready for equality? Yeah. Are you ready for justice? Yeah. Then rise up, levers. Rise up and show the world what the workers can do. Hello, this is a Jace Media Podcast. We are a negative profit endeavor. In this episode, you will hear General Alexander Bradley as he details the courage of the coal miners of his time, the Verdon Massacre, his life, Mount Olive, Illinois, and his death. He speaks from his final resting place, Union Miner Cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois, the only union-owned cemetery in the United States. I was born in 1866, the son of a coal miner in England. My uh, family, they migrated to Illinois by 1875, and at nine years old, I went to work in a coal mine. I went to work in what they called the old canteen mine, or as the miners called it, the devil's hole. And it truly was a pit of hell. The working conditions, the disregard for a child at nine years old to work in a mine, I want to take a little more time to explain this. Coal miner, when he got 24 cents a ton, he had to pay his helper that loaded the car. He had to pay for his dynamite or his blasting powder, his fuses. Had to pay for his equipment to be sharpened, his tools. So many a child end up going in to a mine, working side by side with their father. Is what they had to do for the family. So I started out in the mine nine years old. And in the mines, I learned about the hazards of the mines. And deep in the mines, we learned about the union. I heard men talking about the union. And you need to understand during this time, talk of a union would most certainly get you fired. It'd probably get you beat on the way out if you didn't get killed. Well, I kept mining, and by the time 1894 rolled around, they had a petition and boots march on working the sea. They had a man named Jacob Coxey, Coxey's Army. And I was one of Coxey's first recruits to help lead. And along came the Panic of 1893. And in the Panic of 1893, America experienced an economic crash that they never never known before. There was 10% unemployment. History will show you for roughly half a decade. A week without work meant starvation. The homeless were blamed for their conditions. So put that in perspective when you're thinking about this because when we're going up to 1898, we're still at half a century in a decade, or 10% unemployment. And it was in 1893, I ran across a man by the name of Jacob Cox. Well, Coxie and I and other men, we went out to work in D.C. But the people out west, they tried to join in too. It was an awful long trip. They decided to borrow a few trains. Well, the railroad company wasn't too happy about that loan. And the United States Army met them in Iowa. It 
turn the trains back around, but they let the men walk back. Jacob Coxey had a great idea, and he was a man that liked to dress in a fine tailor-made suit. Because, see, working men didn't get listened to in working clothes. But anyway, those of us east of the Mississippi that made it, we had high hopes when we went to Washington, D.C. And we were basically told ahead of time, if we dare step on the Capitol lawn and enforce the law known about keeping off the grass. And I had to point out a great irony to that in recent history that we just had not too long ago about people trampling the Capitol. But what happened to us, our high hopes got results of being beaten down, we had our heads busted, our leaders were arrested, and we were sent out of town like beaten down animals. Because that's what they viewed us like in the city paper. So you can only tell the United States government to be the ultimate gun thug when it comes to labor rights. That's one thing you can count on. But what it did do, it taught the capitalists and Wall Street to be scared of hell of masses. Wall Street and capitalists trembled. And us working people, we found out that we might have to bust heads in return to. 1897 rolled around. Nine mine workers tried to go on strike nationwide. Illinois had 350 miners at that time, roughly. Approximately half of them from in this town of Monal. When they told you earlier about Monal being historic, you better believe it, Monal was historic. Monal stood out. The miners of Montal were one of the first ones who went to strike ground strike to honor the strike, and I made myself an organizer. And I knew that meant putting myself out there where I might be staring down guns or whatever, like Mother Jones did in West Virginia. Some things are worth fighting for. And I had the word of the miners in Belleville, Illinois, but they would go on strike too. But within a few days, they changed their mind. To be honest, that made me mad as hell. What's a man without his work? So I decided to sit there and tell the miners of Montal that we're going to go back down there, and this time I'm taking you with me. And we're going to get those men to join. And I took the miners from this town and we marched. And we left Monal with a large mass of miners, followed by a supply wagon with our provisions. Went through Staunton. They led us through the town with a parade in Staunton, the miners' band. Ended up in Edwardsville at 6 o'clock in the morning to wake them up to let them know that there's a whole bunch of miners weren't too happy in town. Which caused the miners in Edwardsville to decide they were going to take off the work that day. And they decided to join in. I ended up going to Belva or Collinsville, got the men to join in Collinsville, and then off to Belleville we marched. Now we were given a march right down through Main Street. The city officials said we could come right in, but they did let me know that I would accept what the miners decided. That was common in those towns. Basically, they if they did let you in, they'd say you're going to accept it and you're going to go on. And at that time, I had to go over to St. Louis to get some provisions. And on my right way to St. Louis, I met two men, and they wanted to take me to dinner. We were after a fine dinner and some fine cigars and a few drinks. They offered me a $250 bribe to stop. I decided, hey, why not get $500 out of so I count them $500? Thing is, I used that $500 to buy boots for my men and provisions to go along with the money I had. So I just figured it was a donation to the cause. Then we got over to Glen Carbon. Glen Carbon was really important because Glen Carbon, that was a token paid company. What I mean by that is you did not get real money, you got a token. You owned, you lived in a company home, and they say a man that paid, paid a token has more to lose, I guess. The man paid a dollar, but I really don't know if that's true. But if you're just as broke, you're just as evicted, you're just as thrown out. You lost a lot. So bear this in mind, because we are four years from this 10% unemployment when these men decide to go out and strike. That's a gutsy move. In Illinois, there's roughly 400 dues-paying members. Most of them are from here in Montal, Illinois. But come April 1st, 1898, they sell the strike. And on that day, the Verdant Chicago Coal Company decided they were not going to honor the settlement of that strike. And in Verdant, Illinois and Payne, Illinois, they started stockading their mines. They locked the workers out. It was a barricade situation. It was not a strike. A lot of people misconceived the Battle of Verdun, thinking it was a strike. Those men were locked out. They were fighting for their jobs. Well, history tells you that they rolled in a train one day. And on that train, besides the 175 scabs, 
from Alabama, specifically black scabs, because they wanted to do racial divide, even though Verdun was not a racially divided town. But they wanted to try to create a racial divide. And on that day, seven men got killed. Seven minors died. Three of them are buried right over there. The reason they're buried over there is because for a whole year, these men were debated on whether they were murderers. Because mine guards got killed. Because, see, mine guards wore badges. Made them important. They wore suits. Made them important. After traveling through southern Illinois, I returned to Mount Olive, Olive Beach, coming to Coffee in Illinois in August of 1897. Seems the mayor didn't want our fellows to come in there and talk to their miners. It's during this time, roughly 500 of my men and I camped outside Coffee in Illinois, required a visit from the state's attorney and from the county officials in Montgomery County let me know I was bankrupt in their county. Seems they had to hire over 500 guards just to keep us out of Coffee on day and night shift. On the taxpayer dime, of course. Well, I told them they were going to stay here until hell freezes over, and then we're going to march across the ice. But this was in August, and hell don't freeze over very soon in there. So I had about 500 more miners show up, and before you know it, I had 1,000 miners, and we decided we were going to go ahead and go coffee anyway. So I brought the original 500 in from one direction, our 500 in coming in from the backside. Before the guards realized that they were the meat of the sandwich, so to speak, uh, they arrested me for incitement. I had a $1,000 bond put on me. The mayor of Mont Olive and his merchants of Mont Olive telegrammed the state's attorney's office before that evening even fired to let them know they'll be there to bail me out first thing in the morning. My $1,000 bail was posted. I was told I couldn't go to Coffeen, and the mayor informed the judge that I'm with them and they're going to Coffeen, and that's exactly where we went. As a side note, the miners held Coffeen for roughly three or four days before we decided to give it back. I had to lay low because I was waiting a grand jury indictment, so I was summoned down to Western Arkansas in Indian Territory. I ran across the superintendent down there who was, for lack of better words, was a very cruel man. His name was Ludlow. He let me know to me that before he was done with the miners, he would have them eating their children. The barbarity of the mine owners, there's no describing it. I came back to Illinois. After being found not to have committed any crime, I went back to organize. And on April 1st, 1898, a contract was reached in Illinois. Immediately at that time, coal mines and pain and burden. They decided they weren't going to honor this strike or this contract. They immediately threw the miners out. And there was a lockout and they started building stockades and started arming the guards. And it was at this time they put out a call for black miners from Alabama specifically. Coal companies like to create a racial divide, among other things. They like to keep people separated by their different ethnicities. Long story short, things build up. And before you know it, a call was sent out. And over 2,000 miners showed up outside of the Burden Coal Company in Burden, Illinois. Roughly 500 of those miners were people I organized. Out of that, um, 2,000 people, 60 of them were a delegate from Mount Olive here. Well, they brought the train in. And all counts say that the gunfire came from the stockade first. What is known is seven, main, seven miners lay dead in the field that day. An eighth man died later that evening. Eighth miner died later that evening. If I remember correctly, there were three people from the other side. I returned back to Mount Olive and went back into mines. I was a coal miner. I dug coal, I ate coal dust, I picked coal, I dynamite coal, I loaded coal, I drank with the best of them, and I sure did fight with the best of them if need be too. The one thing about Bradley was, by the time the last couple of years of his life, by the time I died at 52, I'd already been 41 years in the mine at 50 years old when I was broken down, my body was giving up on me. I guess, <laughs> never medically diagnosed, but I was sure you'd say black lung because I had respiratory issues. I had a, a pretty good problem with alcohol because I drank my pains away, just like everybody else did those times. 
I'm Paul with medicine to a lot of people. And it was the people in this town that helped take care of me in my last dying days. To see this town has a rich history of taking care of people because such things as whenever the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike, 1912, first martial law. This town donated $250 to the striking miners out in West Virginia, where Mother Jones could only collect $100 from the socialist Eugene Debs and all them in the Matthew Convention in Columbus, Ohio. And not only that, but these people set shoes. And when you see a picture of Mother Jones putting shoes on children, know that that started right here from Monald, Illinois. Sadly, I passed away at 52 years old, broken down man, but they honor me with having me buried over there with the ultimate men that gave their lives for nine mine workers. You may contact us at J-A-S-E Media Service at gmail.com Performing as General Alexander Bradley was Dale Hawkins, the Redneck Historian. With permission, music and sound effects by Besleyan Studios and Apple iMovie. You will find more of our work on your favorite podcast medium. Thanks for listening. In this podcast, you will hear Loretta Reimer Williams as she channels the legendary Irish firebrand Mother Jones. Mother Jones shares stories of her birth, her life, and finally her burial in Union Miner Cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois. Listen to the end to learn a little-known detail about opening her casket and a nip of whiskey. Not on the ship, one of those coffin ships, crowded onto it, not knowing whether or not we'd ever see land again. I was born Mary Harris in Cork, Ireland, baptized in the Catholic Church at North Cathedral in Cork on August 1st. 
They say that God brought the pestilence, but England brought the famine. So right in the middle of the famine, no one had any work. So my father and my older brother got on a ship, one of those coffin ships, crowded onto it, not knowing whether or not they ever see land again, and went to Canada. And they found work on a railroad in America. And then when they had made enough money, Mother Ellen took her children, her four remaining children, that she had kept alive in Cork and put them on a ship and brought them to America where she could raise them safely. Around 1851, Ellen Harris took her four children on board a ship and went to Canada to meet her husband and her oldest son. And there they lived in Toronto where the children went to Catholic schools and Mary got her teaching certificate. Now you know what a teaching certificate was in those days. She didn't finish her education, no, but she got a teaching certificate. It was one letter from the priest that said she was a good character and she got a job in Michigan and there she taught her little children at a Catholic school, but she didn't like it. And the Great Civil War was just beginning. It was 1861, and she went to Memphis, where she met her husband, George Jones, who was an iron molder. An iron molder took melted iron and poured it into molds. During the Civil War, it was a very stable life in Memphis. Our home was on Winchester Street. It was a swampy, poor part of the city. And I had four children, Catherine, Elizabeth, Terence, and Mary. But in 1867, the great yellow fever struck. It was coming in to Memphis, and we heard that it was coming, coming up from New Orleans. But we couldn't escape, there was no place for us to go. So we had to endure it. We didn't know what was causing the yellow fever. It was mosquitoes. My four children and my husband died. And there I was, alone and penniless, with nothing left in Memphis. So I packed up and I went to Chicago where I took up my dressmaking. But again, trouble followed me. And there was the great Chicago fire. I was just starting to get things built up. And the fire took my business and my home. Burned everything. I had nothing, nothing left. I attended meetings organized by the largest union in America, the Knights of Labor, and they influenced me. There was the Great Railroad Strike and the Haymarket Affair. I had only one goal in life, to store up the dormant rage. 
leave a better life for themselves and for their families to get out from under the oppression of capitalism. Let the workers rise up. There were lots of fights, but they stood strong and brave. The Knights of Labor, the largest union in the late 19th century, strong influencer in the American way of life. Harris played a significant supporting role for the cause of Coxey's army. A march of the unemployed workers, and then there was the new socialist paper, Appeal to Reason, and Mary would write articles and have them printed. Made it a big success. Pyramid of the capitalist system. We tried to change it, where capitalism is the money at the very top. And then all the people telling how good it's going to be, and you can have a wonderful job. Because all of the wealthy are piled on top of the backs of the workers. The laborers are at the very, very bottom of the capitalist pyramid. Violence was not a rarity. In Burden, it left seven miners and four security guards dead. Mary wasn't perturbed. She went headlong into the most dangerous situation driven by the belief that the poor classes had to stand up to those rich people. She was a small number of the unpaid United Mine Workers. She traveled extensively to rally union support. Workers walking to their death, a day of blood. In 1912, 1913, there was a coal strike West Virginia, and the workers walked off their job. The families were evicted and had to live in tents. Tensions escalated when I arrived. I marched into a dangerous no-man's land. And in July, 16 people were killed. There was a battle between the miners and the guards. Guards that have been employed by the mine owners. Martial law was declared. I raised funds and organized women to harass those strike breakers. We would march up into the mines at night with our mops and our brooms because they were afraid of women. It was they were very superstitious and they, they thought it was dangerous for women to be in the mines. Martial law was declared in September. Cabin Creek and Pate Creek were the center of the tensions. And then early in 1913, I tried to bring a petition to Charleston and was arrested and thrown into jail again. Calls were made to the newspaper begged for my release. And finally, after three months, they relented and let me out. The strike had then been settled. In 1913, 
I was up in Michigan. I'd been called there to help with the strike. The Colorado Coal War began. It was a bitter and tragic dispute. And I met the revolutionary Pancho Villa in Mexico and sought his help, not allowing strike breakers to cross over the border. While there, the worst atrocity of all occurred. The Ludlow Guards attacked the women and children. 26 people were killed, and most of them were women and children. There was a major uproar, and the United States Army was ordered in to keep the peace. They released me from jail and ordered me away, but I came back. The mines were owned by the Rockefellers. She was arrested during the coal strike in West Virginia. In 1912, I was at the house in Pratt, West Virginia, where I was kept in detention. In 1892, she was shot at, and the very hotel she was staying in was set fire to. The authorities everywhere dreaded her arrival, and they tried to silence her. The district attorney, Reese Blizzard, he dubbed her the most dangerous woman in America. And here's a cartoon showing President Theodore Roosevelt running from Mary. And it says, I see you, Mr. President, says Mary. And Theodore Roosevelt said, but I saw you first, Mother Jones. The young boys go into the mines. I highlighted the abuses of the children. More school, less hospital. We want to go to school. We seek justice. And I appear at a U.S. Senate inquiry and highlighted the despicable treatment of the minors. I had pneumonia in 1903, and then they said that I was weak. Weak? Me? So I resigned from the union, and I joined the Socialist Party in Illinois. I was one of the founding members of the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, the Wobblies. And in 1907, I was raising funds for the Mexican revolutionaries. By 1911, I'd become frustrated with the Socialist Party and returned to the United Mine Workers. And then I became embroiled in two very desperate disputes. And they kept me in detention. But it wasn't the first time and it wouldn't be the last. They'd capture me and put me away in terrible, terrible situations. Once I was put in a basement cell with nothing to defend myself with but a beer bottle against those dirty rats. I led demonstrations through the snow in Denver, Colorado. Mount Olive sent money for shoes for the children and women in West Virginia and in Colorado. But they didn't have anything. The shoes arrived in December and the children thought it was a Christmas present. In Mexico, I met Pancho Villa and he be and I became fast friends again. The newspapers would post terrible things, how they were ousting Mother Jones, and I was in trial. I would defy the governor. But then, 500 women cheer for Mother Jones. 
I was very rarely out of the headlines. She didn't mind being buried with whiskey. It's what her boys would have liked. I was born in 1837 and died in 1930. I had a lovely funeral in Washington, there at St. Gabriel's Church, and Father Sweeney performed the Mass. And then they had an entire funeral car for me, loaded me on the funeral car, and brought me to Illinois, here to Mount Olive, to the Union Minor Cemetery. My funeral here was broadcast over WCFL radio out of Chicago. Thousands and thousands of people came to my funeral. And here it is, my gravesite. I didn't have a vault, but I had a fine, fine casket. And they put me in it. Here I am at the Church of the Ascension in Mount Olive. Thousands couldn't fit inside the little church. They gathered outside. They had a big parade marching out to the cemetery. 40,000 people were in that parade. In Cork, they had put in an article about my passing. It's how they broke the news to the people in Ireland. Joe Ozanic helped prepare the model for my new monument there in the Union Minor Cemetery. Later, after the new monument was prepared, they opened my grave and the men took me out and they opened my casket. Well, how would you like to be opened up and looked at after all those days? They said I looked just the same as when they put me in. They covered my back up, took me to my new resting place. And before that, the boys all took a little nip of whiskey and put the bottle in the casket with me. And to this day, that bottle of whiskey rests with me in my grave there in Mount Olive. She didn't mind being buried with whiskey. It's what her boys would have liked. Pray for the dead, but fight like hell for the living. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was brought to you by Jace Media Service and the Redneck Historian for the Friends of Mother Jones Museum and Union Minor Cemetery, both located in Mount Olive, Illinois. For more information on Mother Jones, see Mother Jones Museum, Mount Olive.org. Here's Saul Schneiderman. On February 11, 1913, Mary Harris Mother Jones was arrested while leading a protest of conditions in the West Virginia mines, and she was 83 years old at the time. Now, Mother Jones was arrested many times during her illustrious labor career. This time, it was for inciting the miners during the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike of 1912 and 1913 one of the more violent conflicts in American labor history. She was taken to a boarding house in Pratt, West Virginia, which became a makeshift prison. Now, Mother Jones, as we know, was not a labor leader. She was an organizer, an agitator, and she was often called into a strike after it was started. Her her job was to confront the enemy and inspire the miners. In this particular strike in Paint Creek, Cabin Creek, the secretary 
of, whose name was Fred Mooney of the United Mine Workers, said about her activity, quote, she could permeate a group of strikers with more fight than could any living human being. She fired them with enthusiasm. She burned them with criticism. And she cried with them because of their abuses. The miners loved, worshipped, and adored her. And well they might, because there was no night too dark, no danger too great for her to face, if in her judgment her boys needed her. Now when Mother Jones got arrested, she was even more defiant. And so in this particular strike, when she was called before the judge, she said, and I quote, Whatever I have done in West Virginia, I have done it all over the United States. And when I get out, I will do it again. By the way, the Pratt Boarding House, which was the makeshift jail, was actually uh, accorded uh, National Historic Landmark status by the National Park Service in 1992. But unfortunately, the building owners tore down the building, and it was taken and removed from the National Register of Historic Places. But it's an important prison site, and it was a site where Mother Jones was arrested during the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike. Mary Harris, Mother Jones, the most dangerous woman in America, the miner's angel, and the grandmother of descent. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1908. That was the day that an explosion at the coal mine in Mariana in Washington County, Pennsylvania, claimed the lives of 154 miners. It was one of the deadliest disasters in U.S. mining history. The Mariana Mine was on the Pittsburgh Coal Seam, one of the richest coal deposits in the country. The mine was operated by the Pittsburgh Buffalo Coal Company. It was considered by many to be a model operation. The company houses that surrounded the mine were made of yellow brick, had hot and cold running water, and electric lights. This set them apart from other mining homes of the day. By the early 1920s, 90% of all mining homes were wood-framed and less than 20% had electricity. Yet even though Mariana was considered a model, disaster still struck. Mine inspector Harry Lewitt had been on site for two days leading up to the disaster. On Saturday morning, he had just left a mine shaft. According to newspaper reports, he found the mine in, quote, perfect condition. Then, shortly after 11 a.m., came a horrific explosion that left experts puzzled. It was believed that a vein of natural gas caused the deadly blast. Only one man, Fred Ellinger, was rescued from the mine. He gave a harrowing account of what happened to the Washington Observer. He said, quote, I was working at laying brick in one of the entries, and the first thing I knew, a terrible explosion took place, which threw me some distance. My two buddies were also tossed some distance away. I heard them for a while, then all was quiet. Ellinger was rescued, but 154 other men were not. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. The world today's in mourning For the death of Mother Jones Gloom and sorrow hover Around the miner's home This grand old champion of labor Was known in every 
land She fought for right and justice She took an oath That'll about do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music includes The Spirit of Mother Jones by Andy Irvine and The Death of Mother Jones, sung by none other than Gene Autry in 1931. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council of Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Dan Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. While the hard-working miners, they miss a guiding hand. May the miners all work together to carry out her plan and bring back better conditions for every